In 2021, Virginia became the first Southern state to legalize recreational marijuana. And while legalization has recently gained traction around the country, marijuana has been a fixture in American culture for far longer. Some of our most popular music is about marijuana, like this catchy Afro Man song that every millennial will instantly recognize. I was gonna clean my room until I got high. <laughs> I was gonna get up and find the broom, but then I got high. Uh, my room is still messed up, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, because I got high. Because I got high. Because I got high. And classic stoner movies like Pineapple Express have been making audiences belly laugh for decades. Okay, Private Miller. You've been smoking item nine for seven minutes and 13 seconds. We're going to ask you several questions. How do you feel? Uh, well, sir, uh, I feel like a, like a slice of butter melting on top of a big old pile of flapjacks. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, uncovering the history of marijuana in the United States. But first, for decades, America has treated marijuana as a criminal justice issue, locking up hundreds of thousands of people on minor possession charges. And those arrests have disproportionately targeted Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Advocates argue after bearing the brunt of harsh marijuana laws, people of color deserve a spot in the commercial cannabis industry. Here's With Good Reason producer Matt Darrow. Mike Thomas was 13 years old the first time he tried marijuana. It was after school at one of the basketball courts around his neighborhood. Some of the older kids were shooting hoops and smoking, and it seemed to take their game to another level. Everybody get up, it's time to slam now. We got a real jam going down. Welcome to the Space Jam. My first time, it was uh, quite euphoric. I was on, like, the basketball court, and I literally thought I was Michael Jordan. I thought I could fly. Here's Jordan. Yes! As a kid, Mike spent every summer with his grandmother in a rural farm town in southern Virginia. That's where he fell in love with getting his hands dirty and watching plants grow, a love that eventually carried over to marijuana as well. Using marijuana early, we would, we would always find seeds back then, and everyone hated them. They threw them out, but I always collected them. And uh, everyone was like, why are you keeping all these seeds? Why are you keeping all these seeds? I said, because one day I'm going to grow them. They're just seeds. If you plant them, they should grow, right? So I would just, you know, walk around the woods, around my neighborhood, random little spots, some older people's gardens. I would just throw my seeds out. I was like a little Johnny Appleseed, just throwing my seeds out. And I was hooked. Mike was 18 years old when he was first arrested for marijuana possession. That first time, he got off with a fine and some probation. But when he was arrested for the second and third time, he had to serve a jail sentence. Mike says his story is all too common in the community he grew up in. It's kind of hard to count the friends that I know who haven't been to jail behind marijuana possession. I grew up in the early 90s in North Chesterfield, and it was a norm to be pulled over by the police, the car searched. You know, it's just something that I grew up accustomed to. So everyone that I know has simple marijuana possession charges and has been incarcerated behind marijuana. Today, Mike is still a Johnny Appleseed, but a legal Johnny Appleseed. He's a hemp farmer, and when Virginia's commercial cannabis industry opens up in 2024, he plans to own a small organic farm that specializes in artisanal marijuana. When you have the choice between organic and inorganic, and especially if you're a snob like me when it comes to your cannabis, that flavor and that terpene profile means the most. So I think a lot of people would be looking for something um, locally grown, organic, pesticide-free, and that's full of flavor. Businesses are already vying for a spot in Virginia's commercial cannabis industry. Mike says he deserves an opportunity to earn a living off the plant that took so much away from him. I've paid into this with my blood, sweat, and tears. I've sacrificed a lot for this plant. So the fact that I've risked my life for this plant, done time for this plant, 
it's only right that I get into the industry and get what's rightfully mine. And now that it's legal, it's time for me to sort of get back and get into the industry and make sure that I grab hold of it and stay in it. Retail licenses will be required in order to sell marijuana on the commercial market. And Virginia passed an equity program that gives priority to people who have been charged with a marijuana offense. But Mike isn't really worried about getting a license. He says his main concern is access to credit. Traditional banks haven't typically invested in the cannabis industry. And without a loan, he won't be able to finance his artisanal marijuana business. From With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. When Virginia officially legalized recreational marijuana, it marked a major milestone in the failure of the war on drugs. While Virginia's the first Southern state to legalize, other states are likely to follow soon. Catherine Ott is a health sciences professor at James Madison University. She traces the racist roots of the war on drugs and offers sensible alternatives to dealing with addiction in America. Catherine, minority communities have suffered the brunt of law enforcement during the war on drugs. Have minority communities been targeted by law enforcement for drug abuse even farther back? I think it has been an undercurrent in a lot of the policies that have been created since the early 1900s. I would say initially it was the Chinese immigrant population who came to the United States in order to help build our railroad infrastructure. And they were known for having opium dens and smoking opium. And one of the first laws that was put into place allowed individuals to continue to use opium, but it did not allow individuals to smoke opium. And that wasn't something that was being done by individuals who were already in America, but it was something done by individuals who came to America to work on our railroads. So that was kind of the first inkling of creating laws that specifically targeted certain populations. What did you find that people feared about marijuana back in the early part of the 20th century? What did they know about it and what did they think it would do to us? I don't know that they really knew a lot about it. I think they had this idea based on some of the propaganda that was put out in the 30s that if you used it, you would become violent and you might rape someone, you might murder someone without actually any evidence that that happens. They were just so fearful of others that they linked drugs to others and then propagandized the effects of those substances without any evidence that that's actually what happens. Have you read or seen some of those ads? I have. In the 30s, when they developed the Marijuana Tax Act, states developed stamps, tax stamps, that you could adhere to your product if you were to sell it. And one of the ones that I find interesting to look at is from Nebraska. And it is a yellow and red, so it's very eye-catching. And then it has a skull and crossbones, like you would have on something that was hazardous or dangerous. But the crossbones, across the top, it says R-I-P, and then you have the skull. And then across the bottom, <laughs> across the bottom where you would have the, the bones crossed, it has a syringe and a joint. There's a double message, right? Right. Pay up, but don't use. Right. <laughs> and then other states, it's just kind of like a receipt that you would get in an old hardware store. And it just says paid, and that's it. But some of them were very creative in their their tax stamps that people were required to get if they were selling marijuana. But the law was eventually declared unconstitutional in 1969 and then replaced by the Controlled Substance Act in 1970. What do you think immediately led to the actual war on drugs that was declared by Nixon in 1970? What was happening in terms of American drug use and abuse that was the prelude to that? We were coming out of the 60s with the hippie movement and the use of psychedelics and depressants and stimulants, and there was a lot of anti-war protests that were going on. There were the civil rights movements that were going on. 
And a lot of these individuals didn't necessarily support Nixon. And Nixon also knew that you couldn't create laws against people, so you create laws against the behaviors that people engage in. And many of these populations at the time were using a wide variety of substances. So he declared the war on drugs and actually said that drug abuse is public enemy number one. How did the war on drugs come to especially target people of color? If it was primarily hippies and the counterculture and what later became the baby boomers, but the young ones at the time, how did it devolve into a war on drugs that has jailed more African-Americans and people of color than any other portion of the population? And any other country in the world. So after Nixon left office, there was kind of a lull in the, the war on drugs when Carter was in office. Some states decriminalized marijuana, and it just wasn't a, a big issue that they were addressing at the time. But when Reagan came into office, he really hit drug use hard. And laws came back into effect that heavily criminalized substances. He put mandatory minimum sentencing into place. I grew up on his wife's Just Say No campaign. And I remember the buttons. I remember the messages in school. I remember seeing all the television commercials. And it was a huge push to just say no to drugs. What was Reagan responding to? What sort of drug use had arisen by that time that had so alarmed the Reagan administration that it really amped up the war on drugs? For whatever reason, cocaine kind of peaked during the 80s. And you saw some media and, and movies kind of depict that. You had New Jack City, you had Less Than Zero, and they were depicting cocaine use in not a very positive light, but it was still being depicted. Less Than Zero had powdered cocaine among wealthy white kids in Beverly Hills. And New Jack City had crack cocaine in inner city minority populations. And what is interesting is that it's the exact same drug. There is no difference in the substance. It is the same drug. It is just processed differently. Where a cocaine high might last 30 minutes, a crack high might last 15 minutes. And it was much cheaper to get access to crack versus powdered cocaine. So poor people were more likely to use crack? Yeah, it was more affordable for them. It got the same effect, but you had to get high more because you it only lasted 15 minutes. So you had to get high more times in an hour. And so your fix had to happen faster. And people were using both drugs. But we only focused on what the media reported as devastating effects of crack cocaine. One being crack babies, which was linked to inner city minorities. And these babies are born and they're addicted to crack and they, they never get well and they're going to be a menace to our society and they're going to be problem children in school. This horrible, horrible misinformation about these children. These children had just been born. We had no idea what was going to happen to them. And come to find out, by the time they're two, there really isn't a lot of difference between them and their peers that weren't exposed to crack in utero. So with that kind of cultural thing happening, Reagan put into law, or Congress put into law a mandatory minimum sentence. So an individual could have 500 grams of powdered cocaine before the mandatory minimum sentence would kick in. 500 grams. However, you could only have five grams of crack cocaine for the minimum mandatory sentence to kick in. They're the same drug. What was the impact of that on primarily African-American families? You had a lot of individuals that were arrested and sentenced minimally to a mandatory five-year sentence as a nonviolent drug offender. And the vast majority of those individuals were people of color. They were left without potentially someone who provided an income for the family. 
They were motherless or fatherless or parentless. If the children were at home, the children were put into the system. There was a a huge breakdown when so many individuals were arrested for nonviolent drug offenses and given that mandatory minimum of five years for five grams of crack cocaine. When the counterparts weren't being arrested at the same level and could have 500 grams in their possession before that mandatory minimum kicked in. Well, America's been waging a war on drugs. Have you seen ways other nations have handled the same drug problems differently that you've admired? Yeah, other countries, especially European countries, some places are very liberal. You've got Portugal in 2001 decriminalized all drugs, and they didn't see a drastic increase in use rates among anybody, let alone young people. And of course, that was a fear everybody had. And they continue to track it. They continue to monitor. They they offer services to people who seem to be having issues with substances. They have committees and boards that people will go in front of to determine if they need assistance further than a fine that they may have to pay because they were in public intoxicated or whatever that may have been. And some countries have what are known as safe injection facilities, where an individual comes in, they usually have to have their own substance. They don't provide the substance for them, but they come in with their own substance and they're given clean equipment in order to safely inject their substance or to inhale their substance, which a lot of people don't like to talk about harm reduction. They look at harm reduction and see it as enabling or encouraging drug use. From a public health perspective, harm reduction is designed to meet the user where they are. So if a user is still actively using, you want them to be safe. You want them to decrease the risk of HIV, hepatitis, and other bloodborne pathogens. So it's much more of a public health approach than the U.S. has historically been a criminal justice approach. Catherine Ott-Walter is a health sciences professor at James Madison University. In the early 1970s, Richard Bonney became associate director of the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. The commission was appointed by Congress during Nixon's presidency. And while it ultimately recommended the decriminalization of marijuana, President Nixon refused to endorse the recommendation. Today, Richard Bonney is the Harrison Foundation Professor of Medicine and Law and Director of the Institute of Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. He says he got involved with the commission to help put an end to the strict penalties associated with minor marijuana offenses. This interview was recorded in 2021. My recollection is that there was a cover story, I think, on, in Life magazine that called attention to the increasing numbers of marijuana arrests and the strictness, you know, of the penalties because they were mandatory penalties that were adopted in various places across the country. And that, uh, as I recall, there was um, a young man in Virginia, and I think it was in Roanoke, who had gotten uh, what the judges thought was a required 20-year sentence for possessing the amount that he had possessed. And that just highlighted, I think, the concern that was across the country. You kind of wonder, how in the world did it get like this? And that's kind of what got me interested in it. So you became director of that National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, created by Nixon in the early 70s. Why was the commission created? What were you charged with solving? Well, you know, a consensus actually emerged, you know, by the end of the 60s that, you know, somebody needed to take a look at this. So Congress said, we're going to create a national commission. Commission was given a two-year life for the first year. They were to take a look at um, at marijuana laws and make recommendations with regard to what, uh, the certainly to review the effects of the drug and so on, and make uh, recommendations about what should be done uh, about, about the law. And then in the second year, uh, we were directed to take a look at drug policy in general. So in 1972, your commission recommended decriminalization of marijuana. 
How's decriminalization different from legalization? So I think this is one of the most important parts of the report. When people were discussing marijuana, it seemed like it was a kind of a binary choice. You know, you either keep the law the way it is and reaffirm the importance of having prohibition, or you legalize. And uh, I think one of the most important contributions that the commission made to the discussion of this topic was to say those are not the only two options. You know, what we said is even if uh, legalization is not a sensible thing to do now, there's a third option here, which is to decriminalize possession and use so that people who use the drug and got access to it were not punished with criminal penalties because that actually was more harmful than the effects of the drug could be to them, and particularly, of course, with young people. And even then, you know, concerns about arbitrary and racially discriminatory applications of the law. And so our commission recommended essentially decriminalization, which is to not use criminal penalties to punish people who possess and use uh, small amounts of marijuana. So you can say we're not going to punish you for possession of marijuana, but still not call it legalized, right? Still illegal? That's exactly right. That, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of tools at our disposal as a sensible society to try to discourage people, and particularly young people, you know, from using drugs that might not be in, you know, in their long-term interests. And so we should use all those tools in school, in terms of, you know, parental direction, in the churches, all the tools that we have at our disposal to try to encourage young people to behave in a safe and healthy way. We should use those tools and not feel that just because, you know, uh, we're trying to discourage you from doing this, that we need to arrest you and put you in jail, right? Which obviously is doing more harm than good. I mean, that was essentially our view. And it was a very conservative position. I mean, that's what we thought. And yet this was a huge step, right? How was your commission's recommendation that marijuana be decriminalized received? Well, you know, this is a great interesting piece of the history here, because I'm sure people remember this. But at the time when we announced that point of view, it was received actually with considerable support uh, across the political spectrum, because it seemed to like a rational response, you know, to this problem. And so it was actually, you know, very, very favorably received. And quite surprisingly, when you think about it, uh, 12 states actually decriminalized. And so that was clearly the direction, I think, uh, of the day. And then the pendulum began to swing in the other direction, unfortunately. How did President Nixon, who had conceived of the commission, react to this? So we tried to convince the president that there was this middle ground. And uh, I, I think he listened, but for whatever the reasons, he, he rejected the idea that there was a middle ground. And he basically said, uh, you know, if it, it's either legal or it's not. And he was not for legalizing marijuana and that was basically his attitude, that he did not support the commission's recommendation. And what about the two administrations that followed, Ford first and then Carter? Well, so uh, after Nixon resigned in 1974 and Jerry Ford became president, we also had the occasion to continue to work with the people in his administration. And they were basically very strongly supportive of the general approach that we were taking to drug policy. Again, it wasn't just marijuana, but they accepted the notion of decriminalization. And a white paper was actually put out that I helped to write by the Ford administration uh, in 1976 that did specifically endorse decriminalization. Uh, and when President Carter took office, he also was a supporter of decriminalization. So things were moving in the right direction quite clearly, notwithstanding what, what Nixon said. Then along came a screeching halt with the Reagan administration, right? Yes, it was just shocking because one of the the things that was important about uh, what we, the attitude, it wasn't only our reg regulatory proposals. You know, our attitude about this that we were trying to convey is that you have to have, you know, a much more differentiated attitude, 
about drugs. They're not all the same, that you really have to think about marijuana policy different than you think about the policies with regard to other drugs, uh, but that we really had to take a public health approach to this rather than always thinking of it as basically being a criminal justice problem. That was kind of the heart of what we uh, were recommending. But toward the end of the Carter administration, the pendulum began to swing in terms of public opinion. The notion that we shouldn't try to differentiate among the drugs, just say no, was kind of the phrase that Nancy Reagan and those that were supporting that point of view used. And then the penalties, basically, all the decriminalization efforts came to a stop, you know, at that point. Every effort to try to discourage people from using drugs and being more punitive to those that did, which was exactly the opposite, you know, of what we had recommended. It is a little demoralizing, isn't it, that we can't seem to find a middle ground when we face these crises, right? It is. It was very frustrating, particularly for somebody that had spent so much time thinking that we were kind of on the cusp of a new approach, right? Uh, And then it just got a total setback you know, uh, occurred. And it lasted for decades, you know, unfortunately. So now your thoughts on the cusp of Virginia legalizing marijuana, which will take effect July 1st of 2021, both relief, happiness, and a word of caution, moderation. Yes. You know, it's about time that we tried to withdraw the criminal prohibition and punishment, you know, from marijuana use. But my hesitation all along, and this was also the hesitation of the commission, is that we need to understand how to use a regulatory approach in a way that adequately protects the public health. Um, And so we needed to learn more about how to do it. And that was basically our reason for not recommending legalization at the time, is that we just needed to learn more about how to do it properly. And now what I'm worried about is that the states that are legalizing are making the same mistakes that uh, have been made with regard to uh, alcohol and tobacco over the years. Um, And so I think we just need to be very, very careful. Again, it's not an argument against legalization. It's that that you ought to do it in a way that is careful and doesn't essentially put in place a uh, constituency that is promoting the use of the drug when you're trying to actually discourage people from using it in in an unhealthy way. And, uh, you know, I think that's possible to do that. And I, I hope that they will take that part of it seriously, too. Richard Bonney, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Richard Bonney is the Harrison Foundation Professor of Medicine and Law and Director of the Institute of Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. The interview was recorded in 2021. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Today, the majority of Americans favor marijuana legalization. But back in the 1930s, the government used bogus propaganda to scare people away. One of the more egregious examples was Reefer Madness, a government-sponsored movie that depicted a group of teens becoming violent and hypersexual after trying marijuana for the first time. In 2005, Reefer Madness was adapted into a musical comedy starring Kristen Bell. Creeping like a communist, it's knocking at our doors, turning all our children into hooligans and whores, voraciously devouring the way things are today, savagely deflowering the good old USA. My next guest is Scott Maggard. He's a sociology and criminal justice professor at Old Dominion University. He says the media has played a huge role in shaping public attitudes about marijuana. Scott, are you surprised at how rapidly Virginia has moved to legalizing marijuana? I am. Frankly, if you asked me 10 years ago, 
about legalizing marijuana, I would have put money that decriminalization would have been the path that people started to go, not legalization. So I, I really anticipated America would go more towards that rather than having weed superstores, you know, with storefronts and stuff like that. I know you're not a political science aficionado, but what do you think led to Virginia so rapidly going in this direction? Just what's your gut feeling? I think part of it is just sort of an avalanche of public opinion. I mean, we went from, in the 1970s, when 11 states decriminalized marijuana, public opinion peaked at about 30% favoring legalizing marijuana. And now some polls have us at 60%, easily 55%. So I feel like there was a tipping point where, you know, when two-thirds of the country think we should legalize it, I think that puts a lot of pressure on politicians. What do you think is primarily driving right now this rush toward decriminalization and even legalization? I think it's probably a couple of things. One thing is just the overarching idea of criminal justice reform from the things that we see on the news from George Floyd to other discrepancies and disparities that have historically happened in the criminal justice system. I think that has contributed to some of this. When you look at Colorado, for instance, I think they've probably paved the way for showing how you can generate a lot of revenue by taxing this stuff and having better roads and better schools and stuff like that is also a compelling argument for some people. What about the idea of aging boomers? So the very people who in the 70s were most likely to be smoking marijuana are now the older population, which previously had tended to be more conservative? Yeah, and, and I think if, if you look at the pre-boomers, people like my mother, she's almost 80, she grew up with a lot of the propaganda, and the boomers grew up in the 60s, and they saw marijuana as a little more benign than the previous generation had, and they weren't exposed to all the propaganda. So I think even, you know, many of these boomers now are, they don't use marijuana, but they also don't see marijuana aligned with something like heroin. When did that propaganda start? What first alarmed America across the country about marijuana, that it was dangerous? Really, it goes back to somebody named Harry Anslinger, who was the first director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And when he formed the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, he was really interested in opiates and cocaine and really had little interest in marijuana. It's interesting, he was on record as saying marijuana is a menace drug and doesn't deserve the attention of the federal government. And if you fast forward just a couple of years, you know, we're coming out of the Great Depression, the economy is not good, budget cuts, and they're talking about dissolving the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And Anslinger was smart and savvy, and he saw marijuana as a vehicle to create some hysteria make it this menace, and he rode that vehicle to keep the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, not only keep it around, but marijuana became the primary goal of what they were doing. So a lot of the early propaganda and these horrific stories you'll hear were propagated by him, and with media outlets were reporting what he was kind of coming up with. Is this the same guy who claimed a Florida man got turned into an axe murderer because of marijuana? Yes. And, and, and if you look at periodicals in the 30s, that same story was rehashed in, you know, dozens of newspapers and magazines, et cetera. And it all stemmed from those stories he was telling. So that's where a lot of the propaganda really started. Do you have an excerpt from one of those stories that would sort of show us what people were told? Yeah. So one of the things that he said... Um, he said, in Florida, police found a youth staggering about in a human slaughterhouse. With an axe, he had killed his father, mother, two brothers, and a sister. He had no recollection of having committed this multiple crime. Ordinarily, a sane, rather quiet young man, he had become crazed from smoking marijuana. So this is Anslinger's story. And what never made it in is the kid had a history of mental illness, which had nothing to do with marijuana. But that didn't make it in any of the media stories. And he's the same guy who commissioned a movie later that really was scary about marijuana use? Yes. And I think that film, which was originally called Tell Your Children and later called Reefer Madness, I think 
set the tone for what people saw because it showed images of people smoking marijuana, doing crazy, delusional things and committing violent acts, jumping out of windows, doing very erratic things. And I think that's why I think that pre-boomer generation saw that. That was a real thing in their life. Whereas now, nobody takes that seriously. I mean, people that use marijuana will watch Reefer Madness because it's funny to them. You know, they, they make fun of it. And they can't <laughs> believe that anybody thought that. They, they'll smoke marijuana and laugh at it. I actually have a little bit from that movie, Tell Your Children, or as it was later called, Reefer Madness. Let me play that. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. In this film, you will see the ease with which this vicious plant can be grown in your neighbor's yard, rolled into harmless-looking cigarettes, hidden in an innocent shoe or watch case. If you want a good smoke, try one of these. You will meet Bill, who once took pride in his strong will as he takes the first step toward enslavement. (laughs) I'm... I'm really sorry that people saw that almost like a documentary, right? Of course. And now it is hilarious to watch because everyone knows it's ludicrous. You know, I mean, even people that don't want to legalize marijuana wouldn't look at that now and think that's what marijuana is. So these two things, him claiming that marijuana had caused one man to be crazed and become an axe murderer and the movie Reefer Madness, what else was influencing public opinion in the years after? Well, you saw the media, w- stories in the media drastically declined in the 40s and 50s. And and then once we got into the 60s and the Woodstock era, marijuana was seen, you know, more with the beatnik and the hippies and that generation, but was no longer associated with violence. What Anslinger did was he associated with violence and he somehow successfully convinced people that marijuana led to violence and or led to people committing violent acts. And that's not true. And we know it's not true now. And we knew it by the 50s and 60s. I mean, really, the media reports trying to link it to violence ended by the 50s. And, and then we get to the 60s and, and, you know, then we have a different view of marijuana because we have the peace, love generation also. You've looked at public opinion changing since that peak in the 70s when a sizable portion of the population, but not a majority, favored legalizing it. What happened then in the 80s and 90s? So in the early 70s, they passed the Controlled Substances Act, which put different substances in different categories. There's five schedules. Schedule one being the worst, which means a substance has no medical value and has a high potential for abuse. So marijuana was put into that category, along with heroin and uh, LSD and other, you know, methamphetamine, hardcore drugs, and it's remained there since. So as we move through the 70s, marijuana wasn't really a topic. Um, Late 60s, LSD was a topic in the media. And by the 70s, they started talking about PCP. And then as we moved into the 80s, it became cocaine and then crack cocaine. Uh, In some ways, if you look at each decade, there's always a scary drug of the year. What about the appearance of the internet? Did that give people better access to accurate information about marijuana? I think I think it did. I think before that, it would be more difficult to seek out information. There were certainly books. I mean, the first good book I read about it was called Marijuana uh, Reconsidered. It was written by Lester Grinspoon, who was a psychiatry professor at Harvard. And he started researching marijuana as a skeptic. He thought... In the late 60s, he thought, all these young people are using marijuana. This is terrible. So he started researching it, and that's when he sort of, it hit him that there was no research. All the stuff the government had been saying was false. And so that book came out in 70, and he predicted it would be legal by 1980 because he thought, well, certainly when people read all this and see what I'm putting out there, um, it's going to change minds. And it took a long time. So it may have been that the Internet was a vehicle for that. I think... Also, some, you know, in the inner cities that had a lot of um, impact from crack cocaine and heroin and other drugs, um, some some of my colleagues have termed what they call the blunt generation, which are where youth started shifting toward back towards marijuana, say in the 1990s, 
and away from crack and some of the harder drugs. Because I think some of these kids had seen what devastation those drugs did to their neighborhoods and their communities. And they kind of rejected it and saw crack as a loser's drug and moved more towards marijuana probably in those communities. Some people who are very interested in seeing decriminalization are hesitant about legalization because they just don't want a younger generation to have rampant access to marijuana just because perhaps it leaves them dazed and confused, right? What do you say to that? Yeah, and I think there's some merit to that. I think when Colorado first legalized it, there was some uh, marketing and stuff people were doing where they would, you know, you could they would make candy and stuff. And I remember one of the wrappers looked very similar to like a Reese's wrapper, like Reese peanut butter cup. You don't have to make it look like a child's candy, you know. I mean, you can you can put it in a brown wrapper and it just says pot bar and you're going to sell plenty of them. So you don't have to trick people into buying it by making it look like a Reese's bar. And I think I'd be cautious of greed and I wouldn't want to see a Camel Joe for marijuana that targets children. And, you know, I think it really needs to be maintained as an adult indulgence and not something that children should be considering or, or make it neat or cool for kids. You know, I think when Camel Joe went away, that was a good thing for cigarettes. And I think I don't want to see that happen with marijuana. And I think the only thing that would drive that would be greed and those wanting to make more money. Scott Maggard is a sociology and criminal justice professor at Old Dominion University. Coming up next, is marijuana good or bad? for your overall health. While marijuana has been used medicinally and recreationally for thousands of years, the science isn't clear about its long-term health effects. Larry Keene is a psychology professor at Virginia State University. He says on one hand, marijuana has been shown to reduce painful inflammation, especially for people with chronic disease like HIV, On the other hand, it might also alter immune function, making it harder for the body to fight infection, which could be a serious cause for concern. Larry, what was it that made you want to look into marijuana's effects on us? You actually knew people or met people who were taking it for pain. Yes. So I kind of, in a backwards fashion, kind of walked into it. Initially, I just wanted to understand the heart-brain connection, that the fact that you can stress out and it can alter the way that your heart functions. And afterwards, I realized that there are so many other things that can influence the heart-brain connection. One of them just so happened to kind of stick out, and it was cannabis use. So I took a job at the University of Florida looking at substance use effects on the body. But I ended up focusing on cannabis use in African-Americans, and I was paired with a group at this uh, HIV clinic where they openly discussed using cannabis to manage pain and anxiety. And that was my first real project examining cannabis use influence on us at all. And you were surprised by that. Oh, man, it was crazy because I hadn't considered. I knew pain management and all that stuff, and I knew recreation cannabis use, but I had never thought about it influencing, like, your immune function, that level of alteration, that level of change in the body. I had never considered that. But you didn't know it altered immune function. I mean, at that point, you were just surprised that people with HIV took such casual solace in the marijuana? Well, on some level, because let's be clear, people have been, you know, quote-unquote, smoking weed for however long. But to know that they were using it in particular, basically trying to deal with their own symptoms, that was the amazing thing to me. I, I, my mind immediately went to all the nerd stuff, like, oh, what about this immune cell? What about that? What about this? All this stuff that's related to HIV. But realistically, I said, I get it, but what is that doing to your body? For, really? Yes, it helps. But what else is it doing? But it did help them, right? Was it just soothing to them, or did it actually relieve pain? Well, 
it, this is a short-lived type of deal. So it's kind of like, yes, it can aid in pain management, but not for long. And just like some doctors give out uh, certain medications and et cetera to people who are terminally ill, who have life-threatening conditions and things like that, who are living with them, they give them these risky kind of medications because they're like, hey, it can't get worse. And in my head, that's how I view cannabis is when you have a very severe condition, cannabis, yeah, makes sense because it's not going to get worse than it is. Well, at least so I thought. What are you looking at? You're focusing on marijuana as it affects the immune system. What you think is happening with the immune system is what? Uh, what we've seen is there's reductions in inflammatory markers. There are reductions in markers that are associated with infl inflammation. Um, there have been some dose-response-based studies where people actually give them THC and marijuana to use and try to measure the differences in those markers. But in essence, the things that are we our bodies use to fight off foreign pathogens or infections, things like that, are the same things that are relevant for inflammation. So if we're reducing those, are we sure we're not just stamping them out or are we just kind of reducing it for the moment? And that's the weird thing to me about cannabis use. Because we see cannabis as this fleeting thing, right? Um, as uh, you're hungry, so you eat. But you're going to be hungry again in the evening. So it's a short-term type of deal where, yes, the feeding will help you, but it's not going to solve your problem of hunger forever. Cannabis, to me, isn't the same type of deal. You're anxious, but you're going to be anxious again later on. This is not going to stop you. And this isn't something that you can continuously use just to, you know, hold off your anxiety. This isn't something you know really what it's doing to your body. You just know how it makes you feel short term. What do you think are the most worrisome things about chronic marijuana use? So recently, a paper came out by Dr. Yongshuo Ma, one of my colleagues at VCU, and He's basically showing that certain brain areas have, if you can call it, more connectivity between each other. They're more dense. And the interesting thing about that is it's, basically, it's almost like the brain is working harder to process certain stimuli, to process certain things that we see or engage with than somebody who is a healthy person who has not used cannabis. So... Being high makes your brain work harder. Um, we've also seen the bodily effects where, you know, the reduction in infl inflammatory markers, which sounds great until you realize you need inflammatory markers to fight off, you know, different infections and things like that. Um, we've seen the opposite of this also, where we've seen in college students, the cannabis users had lower heart rate than their healthy controls than the people who hadn't used cannabis. So it's a big, crazy bag of cats that we're trying to pull out one by one and name them, you know? But it's slowly happening. It's slowly happening. It's sort of like the issue of legalizing and decriminalizing marijuana. There's so many good reasons to do it, and there are so many worries at the same time, right? Right. What worries do you have? The lack of understanding about what it really is to abuse and chronically use cannabis in those effects on a person. You know, this isn't back when, whatever year it was, when we said, all right, alcohol, we're good. Yes, let's do it. Tobacco, yes, let's do it. We know more. The science is a lot more refined, and we're aware that these long-term effects can exist. So if you're telling me that you're going to open up and say, all right, for those who are prescribed cannabis for pain management and things like that, all right, medical-grade marijuana, great. You go to the dispensary, you get it. But if we're saying, all right, you're 21, go get you some weed, uh, let's, let's slow that down. I don't think that's the bridge we're ready for. If you had unlimited research funds, what would you do next? What do you want to understand? <sighs> This is going to be a layered idea because I think there's so many things that are involved. 
we really don't know the story behind this. We can talk about on a cell in somebody's cellular lab and somebody was looking at literally cells response to THC and et cetera. Okay, great. Somebody's looking at very particular brain areas like receptors within the brain. Okay, great. But nobody's looking at the big picture and really putting it all together in the same group. So if I had unlimited funds, I would do all of it together in one batch so that we can now from that point moving forward say we had a large sample, population level sample. We are able to say what happens to the heart. We're able to say what happens to the brain. We're able to talk about the sex-based differences, meaning men versus women. And then we're able to talk about the ethnic differences, black men versus black women versus white men versus white women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there will be no question about what happens to you, to me, to whoever when they use cannabis. Larry Keene, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Larry Keene is a psychology professor at Virginia State University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Dara, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.